Well, good morning and welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to dismiss them now to class time, their teachers will be at the back door. Uh, you can dismiss them now and they'll go off to their lesson time. Um, if this is your first time with us or you haven't gotten one yet and you would like uh, a scripture journal, uh, just raise your hand. We would love to give one to you. That would be our free gift to you. It's just the Gospel of John on one side and on the other side, uh, a blank page to take notes and follow along with. So if that's something you want, just raise your hand. Uh, we believe strongly uh, in God's Word and we're studying the Gospel of John together and going through the entire book. So we'll be going through it through, through weeks. So if you come back and visit us, you can bring it back and continue to take notes along with the sermons. Um, so this morning is kind of um, a pretty interesting morning as far as the text that is before us. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Even if you did not grow up in the church, uh, you may have heard this story uh, before. Um, but likely, this story actually does not belong in John's gospel. Um, if you look in your Bibles or in your scripture journals, you'll likely see a footnote or a set of parentheses around it or uh, some other way of noting it, or it may not exist at all. Your Bible may end at John chapter 7, verse 52, and then just say John 8, 12, and you're left wondering what's going on here. Why is this passage not here? And so I'm going to spend some time kind of breaking down uh, the reasons why some believe this story is not supposed to be here. And then we'll kind of dive into just the, the kind of the flow of the message this morning, and then we'll dive into the text. Um, some of the reasons why scholars believe this story does not belong in John's gospel. So first of all, this story is not found in any Greek manuscripts prior to the fifth century. So for those of you guys that are unaware, uh, even the most conservative estimates believe that John wrote this gospel sometime in 80, 80, 80 90. And they're kind of the way things worked, and I'll get into this more later, is that John would have written this gospel and then scribes would have copied down his gospel to then disseminate it and share it with other churches throughout the Roman world and uh, the Mediterranean and the, the Middle East and either, even into Northern Africa and parts of Asia. And so when we study the manuscript evidence that we have of copies of the Gospel of John, and they use dating to figure out when these copies were written or these portions of the manuscripts that we have, prior to the 5th century, this particular story does not exist in John's gospel. Now, another thing that kind of then confirms this is early church fathers prior to the 5th century tend to not reference this story in their commentaries and lectionaries that they would have concerning John's gospel. So we'll have early church fathers and they would take the gospel account and they would preach faithfully to their churches and they would teach them. And we have their notes and it tends not to be referenced prior to about the fifth or sixth century of church fathers referencing this story. For those of you who, like me, are, are, are nerds and enjoy learning other languages, specifically ones that aren't used anymore, like Koine Greek, um, you'll also notice if you do any sorts of word study or grammatical study during this section of the text that the Greek grammar 
and vocabulary that's used in this story doesn't fit grammar and uh, vocabulary that John tends to use. As a matter of fact, it closely mirrors actually Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Uh, And I'll get into something about that here in just a second, because there is some manuscript evidence that we have that actually places this story in three other places in John's gospel. And then there are also other manuscripts that actually place this story in Luke's gospel uh, towards the end of chapter 21. So to put it simply, the best evidence we have is that the story of the adulterous woman does not belong here. However, that then poses a number of questions for us and will kind of lead us to the goal of my sermon this morning. So I've got three questions that I want us to work through, uh, and it will kind of help us kind of move through kind of each question that we might have of, well, if this text doesn't belong, how do, how do we respond to that? And so my sermon's going to look a little bit different than normal this morning, but just so you guys know, back when we decided to preach through John's, John's gospel, uh, the elders and I prayed heavily and talked heavily about whether to even preach this, this section or just move through it or 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 to do something different. And what we kind of landed on and decided on was that we were going to continue to preach this text. We were going to preach it as if it's supposed to be there, but we were also going to make you fully aware of some of the questions that were were going on there. Um, So here's kind of how we'll work through this text this morning. I'm going to answer the question that if this text doesn't belong here, which I personally believe it doesn't at least belong in this part of John's gospel, then how can we trust the rest of the Bible? Because that's a fair question to raise if this doesn't belong there. The second question I'm going to try to answer for us is, what do we do with this story then if it doesn't belong? And the third thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about what this story still teaches us, even if right, it might not be a part of canon and belong to John's gospel here. And let me just start off by saying this before we answer this first question. Here at Aletheia Church, we love the Bible. We love God's word. We preach it verse by verse. And so because we love the Bible so much and we believe that it's God's word to us, we believe that it can withstand criticism, even criticism of certain sections and stories like the one before us this morning on whether it's actually supposed to be there tonight. And so I'm going to try to present to you some solid reasons for why it's likely not supposed to be here and why the Bible is still reliable in the word of God and we can trust it. And so that's the first question that we're going to answer this morning is how can we trust the Bible? So what ends up leading scholars to believe that this particular section of the gospel of John doesn't belong is a science of study known as textual criticism. It's what biblical scholars and really scholars of any ancient historical documents use to try to to test the veracity and verify whether a text is authentic or not and whether it's reliable. It's it you can use it for any document not just the Bible, okay? And there's two main camps of criticism that sco- scholars in this particular discipline will use. The first one is known as higher criticism. And basically to define higher criticism for you, it's a critical study that treats the Bible as a text that was created by humans at a particular historical time for various 
human motives. That's the purpose of higher criticism. Basically, if I were to summarize this form of study, it's a position that presupposes that the Bible cannot possibly be the word of God. So why would human beings write it in the first place? That's that's their goal of study and higher criticism. Now, let me just say, I full stop reject higher criticism because it carries with it a bunch of assumptions that I don't think true scientists or scholars should actually carry into the study of ancient historical documents. It also carries presuppositions about the metaphysical, the possibility of the existence of God, and, and certain things about the, their belief about human beings and culture that I believe good science shouldn't bring into the study of just the document itself. And so, but you, if you look into this topic further on your own, you're going to see these two different types of criticism. And so I wanted to make you aware that there are two different schools. Now, the second school of kind of like scholarly criticism that occurs concerning ancient texts is called lower criticism. And it is far different from higher criticism. Lower criticism is concerned with identifying errors in the biblical text or any ancient text and their manuscripts. And in looking for those errors, trying to compare them with other documents and manuscripts or ancient texts to gather both the meaning of the text, so understanding the vocabulary, but also to to gather what is actually supposed to be here and what is not supposed to be there. So, basically, lower criticism is the science of trying to reconstruct, based upon the manuscript evidence that we have and the copies that we have, to try to reconstruct the original text as accurately as possible. And so they're not concerned with trying to understand what the motivation of the writer is or understand whether it's it's really the words of God or really the words of Plato or really the words of Homer or any other ancient writer. They're simply just trying to say, hey, can we be sure that this text is authentic or not? And then upon reading it, we can then draw different conclusions later on after reading the text. But lower criticism is solely concerned with just trying to reconstruct the text properly. Now, you might be sitting there asking, why is this necessary? Specifically, why is it necessary about the Bible? Because depending on where, what kind of tradition you grew up in, you were just told the Bible's the word of God. You should always believe it. Don't ever question. Don't do anything. Right? And I think it's important that we actually understand how we got the Bible, how what we have in our text here this morning, how we got it, how it got transmitted down to us. Because really, if you study it in depth, it is miraculous that we have God's word preserved the way that we do. But something that's important to know and understand is the Bible, while being one book of God's revelation to us about who he is, who we are, and what he's done for us, is a collection of over 60-some books that were written by various authors at various time periods. And one of the things we understand and know about this is we do not have, to our knowledge at least yet, any of the original writings of the authors of the Bible. No, there is not in some museum uh, the original copy of John's gospel waiting for someone to, to read. There is no copy of, of Moses' original words in the book of Genesis for us to read. Now, some of you guys may be sitting there was like, well, that's a, that's a massive problem for the validity of the Bible then. How can I know I can trust it? 
which is a fair question to ask. The only thing I would submit to you in response to that is we don't have the originals of pretty much any ancient document. We don't have copies of Homer's The, the Odyssey. We don't have copies of Plato's. We, have nothing, we don't have the originals of Plato's writings. We don't have the originals of Aristotle's writings. So anything that we tend to kind of reference in past ancient documentation, we do not have the originals of. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, I would go so far as to say that if we had the original copies of John or Mark or Luke or the book of Acts, it is my opinion that Christians would get really, really weird about that stuff. And we would probably end up worshiping that actual piece of paper rather than what it reveals to us about God. Because human beings have this huge tendency to do that, right? I mean, you, there was literally wars, at least from what I understand, over the Holy Grail. Like the cup that, that Jesus served the Last Supper out of. There have been d- debates for centuries about people wanting these artifacts that are connected to religious teachings. And we as human beings tend to then flock to those artifacts and give them more importance than is actually supposed to be given to them. And so God in his providence has not allowed us to have any of the originals of the authors. And yet, right, we have thousands upon thousands of copies of those originals today. And because we don't have any of the originals, it's the reason why a science like lower criticism exists in the first place. It as a discipline would not exist if we had the originals, but because we don't, it exists for many documents, not just the Bible. And the New Testament is unique that prior to about the mid 1400s, when there was this invention called the printing press, you may have learned about that before, We still had in circulation at that time roughly 5,000 copies of the New Testament. Now, what makes that unique is that you need to understand how transmission of these copies worked in the first place, right? If I give you a document today during our member meeting, which is after church, which you are a covenant member, you should attend. And if you're not a member of this church, you should plan on attending. But if I were to give out a document to you during that time, what frequently happens today in 2023 is I'll type up that document, I'll print it out, and then I will go to a copier and I'll make hundreds of copies to be able to hand that out. And it's really easy. And we know for sure that it's going to be an exact copy of what I printed, grammar mistakes and all. But prior to the mid 1400s, if you received John's gospel at your church, And let's say you had planted some churches in the rural part outside of your city and you wanted them to have a a copy of John's gospel. You would have someone on staff or inside your church who was literate sit and copy the entire gospel of John by hand themselves. And this was the practice of transmitting and making copies of God's word for thousands of years. They would write it on things like, Unshuls, which were scrolls that were entire, entirely in capital Greek letters. They had some on scrolls that were called minuscules that were entirely of scrolls of all lowercase Greek letters. Some of the very, very early writings in the first century in particular and into the second century were written on papyra, which was a type of plant that they would write on. And then they would roll that up in plain sheets. And then Other copies are in things known as lectionaries, which the best way to describe those is that they're collections of writings that churches use for public worship. So if you're like, hey, what 
What, what is that? What does that mean? If you grew up in like an old school church that had a bulletin, it's kind of like the best way to describe it. It's a little more complicated than that, but you might go into your old church and there'd be a bulletin there and it would give you the full outline of what the service is going to look like. And it might have the scripture reading for the day or maybe even the actual scripture on it. And then it might even have some words that the pastor was going to share on it. And we have copies of these that were preserved for us from these faithful churches for thousands of years. And so the amount and types of New Testament manuscripts matter because compared to other ancient texts, the Bible blows them away in both the sheer volume of the copies and the reliability of those copies. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. So Tacitus was a, was a Greek and Roman historian, but primarily Roman historian. He wrote about what was going on specifically even in the time of Jesus, okay? And his historical documents are actually where we understand a lot of what happened during that time period from the history of the Roman world, like what the Caesars were doing, what the geopolitical situation looked like in Rome during that time. Do you, anybody want to take a guess as to how many copies of his writings we have? Two. Two. But you never see people debating the veracity of his writings. Uh, even the best attested book in ancient history outside of the Bible is Homer's The Iliad. You probably had to read that in high school and didn't want to. We have a little over 1,000 copies of the Iliad. The New Testament alone has over 5,000 with the combination of the Old Testament, we have over 15,000. Some would estimate even as many as twenty-five to 30,000. And the cool thing about archaeology is we're constantly discovering more. And this is actually really good news because it's good for the historical reliability and veracity of the Bible because even if there are small errors in our manuscripts, we have many copies to compare and contrast with to try to then ascertain what actually is supposed to be here and what is not. And through lower criticism, we can compare and contrast all of our copies and use that to try to ascertain what the original text was that these authors had written. With our current level of manuscript evidence, so this is just kind of like the point I want to finish with on understanding criticism and the veracity of the Bible. With our current level of manuscript evidence, we can be confident that the Bible we hold today is likely what the original authors thought with maybe just a few minor footnotes, like the story of the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. And any errors we might have inside of the Bible are a very small percentage of the totality of Scripture and do not affect any doctrinal issue. And I would go so far as to say that if someone were to try to wholesale reject the authenticity and the veracity of the Bible as a document, just as a document, as an ancient historical document, they would have to throw out every other ancient writing that has ever existed because there is no document as well attested to as the Bible. To put it simply, the study of ancient manuscripts put the Bible as the most attested to and verifiable book of the ancient world. What we have is 99% confidence that what the original authors wrote 
is what is in our Bibles today. And I don't know about you guys, but I think that that should cause us to worship God. Especially understanding geopolitics and historical tradition of how documents came to be written and preserved in the first place. Typically, the historical documents that we have are based upon who was power in the time, at, at power at the time and what they wanted to be transmitted down. And I don't know if you know anything about the history of the Israelites or subsequently the early church. They were not in positions of power. And there was no reason for these documents to be preserved at the level that they were other than the faithfulness of brothers and sisters in Christ who wanted to make sure God's word made it to us some 2,000 plus years later. God was faithful to preserve his word. And even when we come across a text like our text this morning, it should still cause us to pause and reflect and worship God for his faithfulness to us. Just as a quick side note, if any of this stuff, some of you guys look like you're about to fall asleep, and I apologize to those of you who do not care at all about any of this. But I know that there are probably a few of you who, who are like super excited about this. If you're, you're super interested in this topic and you'd like to study more, I highly recommend Paul Wegner's book. It's called A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism. It's history, methods, and results. Okay, let me just say this before you go any further because I see some of you writing it down. Highly academic, extremely boring. So like, don't read this book and be like, oh, like I can't. I just, I'm like so excited, you know, like it's, it's like the next Game of Thrones book has finally been released. I can't, I can't wait for this. No, this is that type of reading. But if, if, if the historical reliability of the scriptures is something that piques your interest or is something that you're just interested in from an apologetic standpoint, or maybe even you have people in your life that you're witnessing to, and they have questions about the reliability of the Bible, this book would be an encyclopedia of information for you as far as going to understand that or being able to understand that and then share that with others. So the question was, how can we trust the Bible? And the reality is, is we can trust the Bible as authentic, even with possible minor errors in our copies because of the overwhelming amount of evidence that affirm its veracity to us and lower criticism. Which leads us then to the second question, Okay, I can trust the Bible. Okay, now moving forward. Well, what about this story? Right? Because if lower criticism seems to say to us that this story doesn't likely belong, what do we do with this story then? Because some Bibles will have it in there and some will not. What do we do with it? So D.A. Carson, it's one of the chief New Testament scholars of our day, has this to say about this story. He says, on the other hand, even though the story likely doesn't belong in John's gospel here, there is little reason for doubting that the event described, even if in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. Similar stories are found in other sources. One of the best known is reported by Papias and recorded by the historian Eusebius is the account of a woman accused in the Lord's presence of many sins. So basically what Carson says is the story, one, appears to be authentic, and two, is actually attested to in other writings outside of the Bible, that there are similar stories between this account and the one that we have in John 8. Therefore, 
many scholars actually think this is an authentic story of something that actually happened inside of Jesus's ministry. That there really was an adulterous woman that was likely brought to him because we have stories that attest to it, both in some of our manuscript copies, but also in stories outside of scripture itself. But even if the story is authentic, that does not mean that God wanted it to be included in his word. So what do we do with it? What do we do when we come across a story like this? And so here's what I'm going to attempt to do for us this morning as we look at this story and unpack it. I'm going to teach through it, but I'm going to show how this story fits in the greater pattern of what Jesus has already revealed to us about himself, both in the Gospel of John and in the New Testament at large. So whether it's supposed to be here or not, because for full disclosure, I was not there when John wrote his Gospel. It would make this really, really easy, but I wasn't there. It is entirely possible at the end of the day that this story actually is supposed to be there. It still is possible. Textual criticism would lead us to say, Probably not, but it is possible that somehow in the early manuscripts it got left out and then there was one faithful one later on that had it and then it got put back in like it was supposed to. We don't know for sure. And to be honest, we need to be able to sit in that tension and deal with that. But whether it's supposed to be there or not, there's nothing in this story that contradicts anything we've seen about Jesus to this point. As a matter of fact, it further confirms everything that we've seen as we've studied John's gospel. It further confirms what Jesus has revealed about himself to his disciples and to the crowds as he's been doing ministry. So let's look at the story together and find out what the story actually teaches us. John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So just a little background information to the story. Jesus goes off to the Mount of Olives to sleep and then he comes back into town the next day to teach. This is a similar pattern of what Jesus does during his Passion Week. You'll see it in the Synoptic Gospels that there was no place to actually stay in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives is actually just outside of Jerusalem proper. That they would go out there, they would stay in tents or whatever else it was out there. There was plenty of room to be able to have a place to stay outside the city. So they'd go out at night, they'd sleep out there and then they'd come back into Jerusalem the next day to participate in whatever ministry, market, whatever it is that they were doing that had brought them to Jerusalem. This wasn't just... Jesus himself, a lot of people would do this. And so it says that he comes back into town and he heads to the temple and he sits down to teach, which is something that Jesus did regularly when he would go to Jerusalem. And look at what happens starting in verse three. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, I want to just pause there for a second and kind of break down the scenario that Jesus is in. So Jesus is sitting in the temple. He's, he's teaching. 
They don't give us any information on what Jesus might have been teaching on. But as he's there, a woman who had been caught in adultery is brought to him. So it's not just that they're saying she's guilty. They're saying that they actually caught her, that she is for sure guilty of adultery. And they present this scenario to Jesus saying, hey, Moses taught us in the Levitical law that if we catch a woman in adultery, we're supposed to stone her. Now, that, this is kind of the first moment where we need to pause and take a moment and say, okay, first of all, what does the, Levit- the Levitical law say? So go over to Deuteronomy chapter 22 with me. All right, and let's just see what Jesus says starting in, I'm sorry, what Moses says starting in verse 23. He says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So like two things I just want to point out there really quickly. One, God cared deeply about the holiness and the obedience of his people. So much so that capital punishment was on the table for adultery. Now that being said, you'll notice some unique things that are mentioned there by God's word in the book of Deuteronomy. The first one is that this woman that was caught in adultery with Jesus would have had to have been betrothed, but not actually married yet, because this is the distinction that Moses gives here in Deuteronomy chapter two for the stoning. But the second thing you'll notice is it doesn't just mention punishment for the woman. Who else is mentioned in Deuteronomy? The man. So what I want you to see is go back to John chapter eight. And the first question we need to ask was, where's the guy? There should be for us as we read this story a real reckoning with the reality of noticing the inequity the iniqui- the inequity that is occurring here and the inequality that is occurring here and yet the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes in this story because they've brought this woman saying, hey, we caught her in adultery. The law tells us that you're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And they're giving the appearance to the crowd that is with Jesus, that of fidelity and love for the law and being consistent with God and his word. And yet they failed to bring the man who had participated in this act with her. And there are all sorts of reasons why that could be. Maybe he got away, right? Maybe they know who he is and he's powerful and they don't want to deal with it. But no matter what, if the scribes and the Pharisees were truly interested in justice, they would have brought the man as well. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the authorities in this case are less interested in ensuring that even-handed justice be meted out than in hoisting Jesus into a dilemma. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the man. They don't care about the adultery. And they don't care what God's word says. What they're trying to do is put Jesus in a bind, which leads us to what is this dilemma in the first place, right? So the scribes and the Pharisees know that if this woman did commit adultery 
and Jesus disapproves of stoning her, he will lose credibility biblically with the crowds that he's teaching to. Because if he tells them, well, I don't think we should stone her, then they're going to say, well, why don't you follow Moses? Why don't you follow God's law? But if he says, well, the law of God says that we're supposed to stone her and the man, they'll know that he's going to support an unpopular opinion at this time because no one was actually stoning men and women for adultery by this point in time in the history of Israel. Not only that, he would be in trouble with the local Roman authorities because only the governor of that region had the authority to issue death penalties. So basically what they've done is they're attempting to put Jesus in this impossible situation from a ministry perspective. They're like, hey, we have concocted this perfect dilemma where we can get Jesus in trouble no matter what. We've done it. We found it. There's no answer that he can give here that will get him out of trouble. He's either going to irritate the crowds and they're going to stop listening to him, or he's going to make the Romans mad and they're going to arrest him. We've done it. We found the perfect situation. And not surprisingly, Jesus is going to find a way out of it. Right, look at the second half of John chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. Now, you might find it interesting that that detail is recorded in this story. He'd been teaching, and he stands up, and he's talking with them, and then he just bends down, and he starts writing things in the dirt. You know, he doesn't have a chalkboard or a whiteboard with him to write on, with markers. Right? So he's writing something in the dirt. And this is one of those moments where people start speculating, well, what was Jesus writing? Because clearly the story is told to us that something was going on, and he was writing something of some importance. What was he writing? So some believe that he wrote Jeremiah 17, verse 13 down there. It says, Lord the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So by writing their names, right, in the dirt, this is the, this is the assumption that Jesus is bending down and writing the names of people in the dirt who were actually there knowing that they would remember this passage in Jeremiah and know what Jesus was trying to say to them. Yeah, you've turned away from God. You don't understand what it means to follow him. Some believe that he wrote down Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. Right, throw that up there for us. Thank you. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Meaning like, hey, you don't have the evidence. You don't have the other person here. What you're doing is wrong. Catholic tradition passes down and teaches that he wrote the sin of the woman in the ground with her name, but then below it began writing the names of the men and their sins on the ground. And so as he's sitting there and he's leaning down writing, they continue to question Jesus as he writes until he finally responds to their badgering and says to them, let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And this is where I want us to start seeing where what Jesus says here is in full agreement with everything we've seen about Jesus and his ministry up until this point in John's gospel, whether this story belongs in the canon or not. See, what what Jesus does by answering this way is he challenges the scribes and the Pharisees who have come to him with this issue of the law and it being broken, and he he fully unveils to them how he is reestablishing and sent by God to help reestablish the Jewish understanding of how God relates to his people and to the law. See, up until this point, what we see specifically amongst the Pharisees is that when it comes to God's law, they were so committed to fidelity They were so committed to following God's law that there was zero grace in the way that they operated. There was zero humility in how they operated. There was zero compassion in how they operated. There was zero, and and I, I want you to fully hear this part, there was actually zero obedience to God's law. That even though they claimed to fully love Moses and and the law and to follow it with fidelity, and they would hold others in in full adherence to it, they actually didn't obey it. Jesus actually says this to them at one point when they're talking about the the law and how it relates. And Jesus says that they tithe their mint and cumin, which meant that they would tithe everything to the temple. Even if it was an herb, they would take 10% of it and give it to the temple the way that God's law told them to. And yet they would neglect the weightier things of the law. And what Jesus meant by that is God's law taught things like compassion and grace and humility and forgiveness. And that they had reduced the law of Moses down to a bunch of do's and don'ts. And with that, they had completely missed the point of God revealing the law to them in the first place. As Paul would share later in the New Testament, the law is our tutor pointing out to us our own inability to obey God and thus our need for a savior. And what Jesus is saying here in this story to the scribes and the, to the, scribes and the Pharisees is a once again shift of the paradigm for them as the Jewish religious leaders. He's saying to them the same thing that Paul taught in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He's talking about how the Galatians are free from the law in Christ. That's basically the summary of the book of Galatians. And when you get to verse 13, look at what he says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, what Paul is saying there in Galatians 5 is the exact thing that Jesus is trying to to say here. 
you can't possibly be fulfilling the law of God because your motivations are impure. You bring her here without the guy being here. You, you, you show yourselves to be guilty in the first place because you're not even meting out justice the way that Moses demanded it. You don't care about God and his holiness. You care about power and prestige. You don't care about fidelity to God. You care about appearance. And Jesus teaches us that God's desire is a pattern of compassion and love, not angry, zealous, prideful law-keeping. And not surprisingly, if you look at the story, it says the men begin to file out one by one. And there's kind of a cool little thing shared there that I'm not entirely sure if it matters or not, but it says the older men are the first to file out. I don't know if that's because he wrote their names in the ground first and so their sins were written first, or if they just simply heard what Jesus said. And, and for those of you in this room that are older, the older you are, the more sinful you realize you are. And if they're reckoned with their own wickedness, Jesus has said to them, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And as they sit there and they process and they examine their own lives, they turn around and walk away in shame, knowing that they are just as guilty as this woman that they have brought before Jesus. And then we get to this beautiful moment in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So it's just the two of them. Everyone else is left. We don't know how many are there, but they're all gone. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And just to make it clear that that phrase woman is actually a term of respect in first century Israel, not one of disrespect. It's, it's the equivalent of a southern like, Hey, ma'am. And she looked at him and she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Right, so he looks at her and says, Where are your accusers? And she says, They're gone. And Jesus responds with these beautiful words. Neither do I condemn you. Which, by the way, there was one person in that crowd that could cast a stone. And it's Jesus. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And this is the exact same pattern that we saw Jesus use after he had healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter five. He heals the man and then he looks at the man and says, go and sin no more. Because this is the pattern of Jesus's ministry. 
He has the sinful brought to him. And instead of condemning them, he extends mercy, extends grace and forgiveness to them. But on the back end of that extension of mercy and grace that Jesus extends to anyone who believes in him is the call to then obey. And what I want to leave us with today is that even though this story may or may not likely belong in in the gospel of John, that does not mean that the story does not have merit for us to consider. Because this story follows the same pattern of the revelation of who Jesus of Nazareth is all throughout the gospel of John and further as we study the New Testament. And Jesus has been teaching throughout the gospel of John, I am God's son in the flesh. And I have come to reveal who God the Father truly is to you so that you might know him, love him, receive his forgiveness and have life for the first time and obey him. And as he's been teaching this, one of the things he's been making consistently clear in his teachings is that you think you love God, you know him and follow him. He's saying this to the Israelites. You think you do, but what you fail to realize is you cannot earn God's favor through your performance because God demands perfection and you are too wicked. This is why you can go back to John chapter three and remember as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus at night and Nicodemus is trying to figure out Jesus's teaching because he's been listening to him. He's like, I don't understand what you're teaching because you seem to love the law, but you still extend mercy and grace and forgiveness and tell people to come to you. And I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus and says, oh, Nicodemus, you're too wicked. You must be born again. And I remember Nicodemus is like, do I climb back in my mother's womb? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This doesn't make any sense. And what Jesus is teaching is no, Nicodemus. Now you need to be born again, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Through me, you need to be made alive to God for the first time. It's why Jesus said back in even the last chapter in John chapter seven, verse 37, he stood up on the last day of the feast of the tabernacles and he announced, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is saying there is I have come to establish righteousness and obedience to God when you cannot. I've come to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness for your sins. Like the woman here who has been caught in adultery. Like the man at the pool of Bethesda. Like the Samaritan woman at the well. And other examples that we'll see. That the pattern of obedience to God and fidelity to Him doesn't start with us seeing the law and then trying to obey it. It starts with us seeing the law, realizing we can't obey it, and knowing that Jesus died in our place to forgive us. And out of that position of forgiveness, we then obey.
just like the woman here, who walked away uncondemned, but was told to go and sin no more. See, this story points to the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Knowing that God hates sin so much and yet loves his creation so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place, to die in my place for the forgiveness of sins and simply calls us to believe and trust him for that forgiveness. And out of that belief, to pursue obedience to him, not through our own power, but through our identity and having been forgiven by him. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Where are you? Trying to perform on your own? Right, trying to earn God's favor. Trying to live as if you were righteous like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says instead, lay that down and come to me. Lay down your sin. Trust me. And walk forward in obedience not to earn my favor, but because you already have it. And then go and sin no more.